Well, it'll be helpful to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11 open. Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11 is our portion this evening as we think together about the joy of loss and the joy of gain. The joy of loss and the joy of gain. Very few human beings get the hang of something important after hearing it explained only once. Whether you're learning how to do one of the manoeuvres you need to pass your driving test, maybe trying to master some musical or sporting technique, most of us need to hear things repeated. Certainly I need to hear things repeated and demonstrated many times over and over again so that we really get it, so that it sticks in our minds and in our hearts. You maybe heard people talk about needing to get back into the swing of things and, and that comes from the world of golf, of course, because uh, most golfers, before they start a new season, they, they literally go back to the very basics of their swing. Sounds like poor Rory McIlroy might have to do that very soon. They go back to the, the basics of their swing to, to get it just right again. Practice and repetition are just facts, necessities of life. Well, the Apostle Paul knew that the Christian life is the same. That's why he begins this new section of his letter this way. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. What he's saying is it does us no harm as believers. In fact, it's very important for us to be reminded of the most important truths and realities of our faith again and again. Should be very wary of anyone who stands up claiming to teach the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, who has some new teaching. We believe in what is tried and tested and true. We come back again to the Word of God that we have heard many times before uh, to receive the, the vital, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the fundamentals of that truth again and again. And that's what Paul does here. He returns to the heart of our faith as believers, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He returns here in chapter 3 to the question, the most important question that any of us can ever ask. How can I be right with God? How can I know that when I die, I'm going to be in heaven. I won't face punishment for my sins. Paul's going to explain the answer to that question in terms of what we need to lose. And what we need to gain. So first of all this evening we see that Paul tells us we need to joyfully lose your misguided religion. Paul is telling us in this passage we need to joyfully lose our misguided religion. And I use the word joy because once again the, the, the theme word of this letter it appears there in chapter 3 verse 1. Finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord. How do we do that? Well, the first thing is we need to joyfully lose our misguided religion. Paul's language in verse 2 is incredibly strong. Look what he says. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The dogs here, of course, are not the fluffy, house-trained, friendly type that many of us are fond of. Uh, these are wild Vicious, predatory dogs that you would find in the deserts of the Middle East. Uh, this was the word the Jews often used to insult Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They, 
They would call them dogs, Gentile dogs, unclean, impure. But Paul actually here turns the insult around. He's describing Jewish false teachers as dogs. People who had got a foothold in churches and who were preaching a false gospel. The name given to these Jews by Christian writers is Judaizers. Judaizers. The Judaizers were preaching to Gentile believers, or at least to those who were who, 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 Gentiles who were perhaps within the community of the church, that if they wanted to be truly saved, they had to keep all the hundreds of laws for God's people that were found in the law of Moses at the first five books of the Old Testament. Not just the, <clears throat> not just the moral law or the Ten Commandments, but all the hundreds of other laws as well concerning food and feasts and washings and worship. Above all, they said that Gentiles, to be saved, had to be circumcised. Now, very providentially, we come to this text after looking at God's covenant with Abraham this morning. And we thought about how circumcision was the the God-commanded sign of the covenant in Abraham's day. That God commanded Abraham and all his male descendants to carry out circumcision, to cut off that piece of flesh as a sign of the covenant. And that symbolized the the spiritual cutting away that needed to happen, that God needed to cut away their sin. But friends, nowhere in the Old Testament, including in the passage we looked at this morning with Abraham, when when circumcision was first commanded by God, nowhere did God say that circumcision in and of itself made you righteous. It was only a sign. We thought about this at length this morning. It's only a sign pointing to what needed to happen spiritually in your heart. And that's why we find several times in the Old Testament uh, something along the lines of what we read earlier in Deuteronomy 10 verse 16. Deuteronomy 10 16, God through Moses says to the people, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That's what God wanted. Not just the outward sign, but a heart, a life devoted to him. That in our hearts we confess our sins and we trust in God for salvation. But what had happened over time was that physical circumcision, the sign, had become a matter of ethnic and religious pride amongst the Jews. And worse than that, by the time of Paul, there were Jews coming into churches and demanding that everyone be circumcised, be they Jew or Gentile. Unless you're circumcised, you're not saved, was what they were claiming. And this this issue brings out anger in Paul like nothing else really does in his letters. Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, for example. 1 Corinthians is basically Paul having to deal with a long list of things that have gone dreadfully wrong amongst the Corinthians. All kinds of faulty thinking about sexuality, about worship, about spiritual gifts, all kinds of things. But Paul doesn't show anywhere near the level of anger in the letter of 1 Corinthians that he does in a letter like Galatians, for example. Where he's writing to people who should have known better. And who also some of them were uh, 
falling for this false teaching about circumcision. Paul is always angriest when he's dealing with false teaching. He says here in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 that these people mutilate the flesh. And Paul's being uh, clever with his words here because the word in Greek sounds, the word for mutilate in Greek sounds a lot like the word for circumcise, but it's a little different. And so what Paul's saying is these people have latched on to the teaching about circumcision, but they've got it wrong. They haven't quite uh, got the, the knack of it. He's making a mockery of their belief that if you just cut off a little bit of skin in the body, that that's you right with God. Then he takes things further. These Judaizers, these men who were so proud of being Jewish, believed themselves to be at the top of the the religious and ethnic uh, pyramid, so to speak. He says to them in verse 4, I've got far more to shout about than they do. Paul says, if they think that who they are or what they've achieved makes them better than everybody else, well, wait until they hear what I can say about myself. Firstly, in verse 5, Paul describes his privileges. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So Paul was circumcised precisely as God's law commanded. He says, I'm of the people of Israel, so I was born into the right nation. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That's an impressive tribe. The tribe that gave Israel its first king. The tribe that had the city of Jerusalem within its territory originally. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Which probably means that Paul could have used the the Hebrew language as his first language if he'd wanted to. The language of Abraham and Moses. The language that the Old Testament scriptures were originally written in. In Paul's day, not every Jewish person could speak Hebrew. But Paul could. So Paul describes his privileges here. A true blue, born and bred Israelite. Then he also tells us about his personal achievements. Verse 6. As to the law, a Pharisee. He was part of the group that was most concerned to keep every part of God's law. As to zeal, he says, you want to talk about being zealous for the things of God? He says, I persecuted the church. I cared so much about the Jewish religion that I wanted to stamp out this new Christian religion. (coughs) As to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. That's what God had. Interesting, isn't it? That's what God had told Abraham he had to be. Walk before me. And be blameless. Paul says. I'm, the, I'm like a true son of Abraham. Before God's law. Blameless. You couldn't have found one thing that God's law required. That Paul hadn't done. At least the outward aspects of it. He was faultless. He had kept every bit of it. He was born with all the right privileges. He had achieved all the right achievements. What he's saying friends is. That nobody can lay a finger on his Jewishness. Not even these Judaizers could claim to be as thoroughly Jewish as Paul was. But there's a big but at the start of verse 7. Look what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
He says later in verse 8, For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And the word there for rubbish in the original language is far, far stronger. Think of some of the less polite words for dung. And you're getting close to what Paul is saying. I count it all as loss, Paul says, three times. He says that all my privileges, all my achievements, all my Jewish religiosity, loss, rubbish, not worth talking about. He's using the language of an accountant here. Imagine sitting down with a ledger. You have your losses column and you have your gains column. Paul puts all his privileges and all his achievements as a Jewish man into the, into the losses, into the red. They're of no, they're no asset. <coughs> they're, they're of no value. They're of no benefit. They're worse than useless. And better off without them, he's saying. Compared to having Christ. In Acts 27, we have the count of Paul being involved in a shipwreck on his way to Rome as the storm got worse and worse. Eventually, the crew in Paul's ship threw the cargo overboard. Now, there could have been some very expensive, important bits of cargo in that ship. But if it was going to weigh them down, if it was going to, if it was going to put people's lives in danger, well, then get rid of it. It's no use. What had once seemed so important in the face of the storm was useless. And spiritually speaking, friends, that's what man-made religion is. The kind of religion Paul describes here, it doesn't help, it destroys if we don't let go of it. This could be a very offensive message to some of us because we have had the same kinds of privileges that Paul had. Many of us born into a church that preaches the gospel Went to Sunday school, baptized many of us when we were little infants. Wonderful privileges. Some Christians can, or or some people who uh, attend Christian churches rather, can perhaps claim great religious achievements. Not as impressive as Paul's, but still. Maybe very few weeks absent from church. Play our part on church committees or sessions or diaconates or youth work. We know portions of scripture off by heart. What does Paul say about those things in and of themselves if that's all we cling on to? He says they're dung. He says they're loss. If you think any of those types of things earn your salvation, they are worse than useless to you. So many people in Northern Ireland have taken things that should be stepping stones to faith in Christ, if you like, and they've made them stumbling blocks to faith in Christ. Things that will not save. I'm a good Catholic. No. I'm a good Protestant. No. I'm a Unionist. No. I'm a born and bred Covenanter. No. I've been baptised. No. My name's on a church roll. No. I'm a good person. No. If any of those types of things is what you think will save you from your sins, you're looking at a pile of dung. You cannot be saved by Christ plus 
You can only be saved by Christ alone. And many of us know this. And nonetheless, even as believers who do genuinely have faith in Christ alone, we sometimes fall into this mistaken attitude of of thinking that the gospel is just what sort of gets us started in the Christian life. And the rest of it is up to us. We need to make sure we do this. We need to make sure we do that. We need to keep up a bunch of man-made traditions. No. Paul says religion that has been twisted into a version of I save myself is loss. I remember hearing a tragic story from a pastor who had once had the opportunity to minister to a man who was on his deathbed. This man was elderly. He was what many in our culture would call a good man. But he had never declared faith in Jesus Christ. The pastor sitting at his bedside decided to turn to Ephesians 2 verse 8 and read it for this man. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the minister having read it said to the man, Mr. So-and-so, do you know you're a sinner? And that only the gift of God's grace received by faith will save you from your sins? And the man gave this tragic reply. But you know, Pastor, I was in the Boy Scouts. Is anyone here tonight, in the, or listening in tonight, in the pitiful position of trusting in something that you are, something that you've done, and thinking that will be good enough when you stand before the holy face of Christ the Judge? Dear friends, it will be loss. It will not save you when you stand before a holy God. But if religious privileges and achievements don't make us right with God, what does? Well, having thought about how we need to joyfully lose our misguided religion. uh, Secondly and finally this evening, we consider how we need to joyfully gain our God-given salvation. Joyfully gain, or perhaps we should say joyfully receive Our God-given salvation. Paul says in verse 8. I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And you can hear the joy and the thankfulness in Paul there can't you? Paul was, was intercepted by the Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus. In an instant he realized that nothing that he had, nothing that he was would save him from his sins. He was utterly transformed and changed. And Paul says all those privileges and achievements are nothing compared to what he has gained in Christ. He says they're knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And of course this is more than head knowledge of Jesus. This is not the same as knowing that 2 plus 2 equals 4. In the Bible to to know someone is often used as, as a euphemism for deep intimacy between two individuals. For example we read that Adam knew his wife Eve. And she gave birth to a son. Well obviously he knew her better than anyone else ever would in that sense. And having first met Jesus on the Damascus road. The rest of Paul's life had become a quest to get to know the Lord Jesus. More and more to understand and appreciate the gifts of salvation. More and more. 
And Paul finishes this section by setting before the Philippians three wonderful truths. Three things that we know about salvation in Christ that nonetheless, as Paul says earlier, to remember the same things is no trouble for us and is safe for us. And so three things that we know and love about God, our Saviour. First of all, we are to celebrate our justification in Jesus. Celebrate your justification in Jesus. This is verse 9. He says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness that Paul thought he had before his conversion was a righteousness that he had got for himself. I've done this. I identify as that. I've carried out these jobs. And instead, the righteousness that saves is righteousness that's given to us as a gift. Again, very much ties in with what we've seen from the life of Abraham recently. Righteousness that we receive by faith. Righteousness that is all of Christ, who didn't just do or not do all the outward bits and pieces of the Jewish law that Paul could claim he had done or not done, but Christ who had a perfect heart and a perfect mind wholehearted obedience that he had offered up to God. That's the righteousness that we can claim by faith. This is what the Bible calls our justification. And someone has summed up justification as just as if I've never sinned. And that's true. But it's also more than that. Justification also means it's just as if I'd always obeyed. It's not that I just, we avoided doing the things we shouldn't do, but it's also that we did the things that we should do. And that's what Christ simply gives to us. Here's my righteousness. Here's my perfect record. Because he never sinned and he always obeyed. So it's not just that Jesus wipes our slate clean. It's that Jesus fills our slate with good deeds, with righteousness, a perfect record. One writer says, in other religions, you have to do the work. In Christianity, Christ did the work. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. You know, I've, I've heard Christians once or twice say, you know, those Jehovah's Witnesses, they, you know, they knock on all those doors. Uh, they talk to all those people. They would put us Christians to shame. But do you know why Jehovah's Witnesses knock on all those doors? It's because they think they are earning their righteousness. That is literally part of the false teaching that they are living with. That that is them one step closer after a day on the doors to being saved. We have Jesus, who of course we should go out and proclaim to the world. But he says... I've lived the perfect life. I've died a sacrificial death. You're justified because of me. Just believe it. Receive it. And then go and tell others about it. Celebrate your justification in Jesus. Secondly, Paul says that we are to pursue our sanctification in Jesus. Pursue our sanctification in Jesus. This is verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, it's important to appreciate here, Paul is not saying that he wants to physically die in the same way Jesus died. That's not what he means when he says becoming like him in his death. We know, of course, that Paul was willing to die for Jesus if that's what a saviour required of him. But when he says they're becoming like him in his death, he's saying that just as Jesus died and rose in a, in a transformed, resurrected body, Paul, likewise, in a, in a spiritual sense, wants to die to his old way of life. He wants to put his old sinful nature to death, that lingering selfishness and pride and greed and whatever other sins he struggled with. He wants them to die. And he wants to transform. He wants to become more like Christ. That's why he mentions the power of Jesus' resurrection. Friends, do you know the same God who was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead is powerful enough to continually and increasingly change and transform your heart and your life so that you become more like the Lord Jesus. That's sanctification. Boys and girls, it's one of those big words, sanctification, but it just means changing, becoming more and more like Jesus. A few years ago, Hannah and I had the opportunity to transform a tired little old house. Well, I say Hannah and I, it was pretty much Hannah who did it, ably assisted by her father. And in the space of a few months, I saw this house that had, had dated drab decor that had smelt musty and looked neglected. I, I saw it transformed, but it was a process. Some of you have done the same thing in your homes. It takes time. Maybe you think you have a room completely finished and then you realize oh, there's a crack on that wall. There's, uh, there's a plug socket that doesn't work. There's a little bit more work required here and there to finish it off. It's a process of transformation, but it has begun And it will be completed. And that's what God is doing in each and every one of us as believers. Again, I'll not read it, but uh, again, uh, once more providentially, the the question and answer that we have in the bulletin today from from the catechism is very timely about the differences between justification and sanctification. If you haven't read it yet, please do. But it's a process that has begun in the heart of every believer. It goes at different paces. It can be more dramatic in some than in others. But God will finish it. By the same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead. And Paul mentions that this may involve suffering. Verse 10. And we've seen this in the life of Abraham. There, there is suffering involved at times in our sanctification. Putting sin to death is, is difficult at times. It's demanding. It's humbling. It can be tiring. It shouldn't surprise us to find that we have to live with sorrows if we're devoted to following the man of sorrows. But nonetheless, God can use it all to draw us closer to Christ, to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. So pursue your sanctification. Ask for the power of God for that sanctification to continue. So as we joyfully gain Uh, Life in Christ, we are to celebrate our justification. We are to pursue our sanctification. And lastly, we are to anticipate our resurrection 
in Jesus. We are to anticipate our resurrection in Jesus. Paul finishes by saying in verse 11, By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And again, just to avoid any misunderstanding of Paul's words, when he says by any means possible there, he's not saying that his resurrection is in doubt, or that his salvation is in doubt. Uh, what he, when he says by any means possible, he's simply saying that he doesn't yet know how the rest of his life will pan out. He doesn't know when or how he's going to die. He doesn't know if he's going to someday come back to Philippi and minister amongst them again. But what he's saying is that whatever happens, I am going to experience resurrection from the dead. It's a certainty. It's what he's looking forward to. It's what drives him on. I wonder, friends, do we think enough about the fact that what happened to Jesus Christ when he rose up and walked out of that tomb on the first Lord's Day? That's exactly what will happen to us someday. One moment Jesus' body was dead, the next it was alive again. And alive in such a way that it could never and will never die again. That's going to happen to you and to me. Do we think enough about the fact that Jesus used his resurrection body to enjoy a meal? To eat bread and fish on a beach with his friends? To enjoy good food and good company? In his resurrection body. That's going to happen. To you and to me. Do we think about the fact that Jesus in his resurrection body. Seems to have had abilities that he didn't have before. That he suddenly appeared in rooms that were locked. That he could appear and disappear at will. His resurrected body seems to have had power. That his original body before resurrection didn't have. That's going to happen to you and to me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised the first fruits. That the resurrection of Jesus is a little taster, a little trailer, a little preview of our resurrection. Of a much greater resurrection, greater in number of people that will be resurrected still to come. Think about your resurrection the next time you're sitting in a hospital waiting room. Think about your resurrection the next time you have to put effort into getting out of your chair because of the aches and pains of older age. Think about your resurrection the next time you have a cold. Think about resurrection when you say goodbye to a loved one whose body must for now Go into the ground. By all means possible, I will attain the resurrection from the dead. The same God who was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead is powerful enough to also raise you and me from the dead. This is what we can joyfully gain in Jesus Christ justification, sanctification. Resurrection. Glorification. So don't hold on too tightly to the trinkets and treasures and distractions of the world. Appearance, hobbies, money, 
entertainment. Whatever gain I had, says Paul, I counted as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Eternity is coming and we've barely touched the surface of all the joy and goodness that there will be for us in Jesus Christ, in glory with him. No matter how far or deep you've ever swum at the seaside at Port Rush, you've still barely touched the great Atlantic Ocean. And however much pleasure and joy your salvation has brought you so far, you've barely touched the ocean of blessing that you will find in eternity. If you can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.